As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, do you remember that time I bought an actual barrel of oil? Or I tried to. Yeah, I thought about that. And, um, you know, it's cool. I, we used to sit right next to each other. I mean, now we're on the opposite sides of the world. <laughs> but that was fun. We didn't appreciate That was great. We actually like, got to like work next to each other. And I remember you bought some oil and you kept it on your desk for a while. Yeah, well, I, hmm, I didn't really want to leave it in my apartment because I'd heard and learned that crude oil evaporates into the air and it's not very safe. So obviously I took it to the office and I put it um, on the desk that was right next to you. Uh, but <laughs> the whole point of that- I survived. Yeah. The whole point of that- Actually, you know, I heard that that um, the little thing of oil fully evaporated after a few years. It's totally gone now. It's kind of crazy. Oh man. Wait, where did it go? It, into the air. Oh, someone else at Bloomberg took it and then it evaporated. So oh, I'm sure it's in the trash now. Anyway, okay, that was a very um, strange tangent. Okay, the point of doing that story to actually try to buy a barrel of oil was to show exactly what was going on in a key commodities market in crude oil, of course, at a really interesting time. This is when we had um, some interesting patterns in the market, uh, the contango structure, where in theory you could buy oil and sit on it and forward sell it to someone else, and you could pocket the difference and make some money just by buying oil and then storing it for a while. Do you remember that? I do. That was right. That was like the whole point. It yeah. wasn't just that you wanted to learn how to transfer oil, but there was like a, a, a carry trade or a contango trade That's or something right. going on. So, you know, I've taken an interest this year in logistics and transport and the shipping chaos that we've seen. We've done a number of episodes at this point on the uh, the gridlock in global shipping. Yeah, this is uh, the, the topic du jour. I mean, I think there are many topics, but, you know, it's all the interesting stories this year have not been really in anything related <laughs> to uh, liquid markets or anything classically macro, but in micro, how does shipping work? How does home building work? How does sawmills work? Anything sort of like real on the ground economy is uh, is where it's at in 2021. That's right. I'm so glad you said micro because we are going to be going very, very micro in this episode. So in the spirit of actually buying a barrel of oil or some oil, earlier this year, around January, I set out to actually ship something via container 
from Hong Kong to the West Coast of the U.S. Did I tell you about that? You brought it up on our uh, interview with the Flexport That's CEO. Right. And yes. that was sort of, but we didn't really get into what happened. I don't even know. Did you ship it? I don't even know what happened. Uh, yeah. Okay. So spoiler alert, we didn't ship it in the end. It turns out that the gridlock in global shipping is so extreme that I couldn't make this work. And we tried for about four or five months and I just kept getting bumped from ship to ship to ship. So I gave up eventually. I'm sorry, but I know that like all these ships are packed. However, I refuse to believe that there wasn't space for a teddy bear on one ship. I mean, come on. (laughs) Uh, well, come on. Okay, we are going to get into exactly what happened. We're going to go super micro, very granular, and talk about what it is actually like to try to ship something via container from the east to the west at the moment. Um, and I think it's going to be a really enjoyable conversation in the spirit of uh, you know Gonzo financial journalism. Great, let's do it. All right, so. Our guests on this episode are two people that were very, very helpful to me in trying to arrange this experiment. They spent an enormous amount of their time on this, and I feel really bad that we couldn't make it work. But uh, we're going to be speaking with Anton Posner. He's the chief executive officer at the Mercury Group and Margot Brock. She's a president at Mercury Group as well. So Anton and Margot, thank you so much for coming on. Ah, Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. Yeah, great. Great to be on. So, uh, Anton, I sort of, um, I set it up a little bit there, but I'm trying to remember now how we actually met and embarked on this whole experiment, but shipping a single container that is mostly empty and, you know, we settled on putting a, a teddy bear in it because it was easy to procure and kind of fun, but that is not what you do day in and day out at Mercury Group. Is that right? Right. We very, very rarely are putting one teddy bear in a 20-foot <laughs> container. It's almost, almost never happens, right? <laughs> so you specialize in bulk freight, right? R- correct, right. So I'll give you a little back, uh, background. So Mercury Group, our vast majority of our business is is bulk and break bulk uh, freight and supply chain management. We're commodity uh, people, industrial commodity people. So, so our cargo that we're typically dealing with is aluminum and steel and copper and copper concentrates and alumina, which is a raw material for aluminum, uh, aluminum production, organic soybean meal in bulk coming in from uh, moving in uh, containers transferred to bulk, moving up the Mississippi River system, for example. So uh, so vast majority of what we do is on the bulk side, which is just as, uh, and that that. So, and we'll get into it further, right? But that industry and that part of the supply chain sector is just as crazy these days as what the container world is seeing. So, why, why don't you walk us through a little bit of the differences? I mean, we uh, recently talked to uh, Ryan Peterson, CEO of Flexport. And, you know, we sort of have this idea of like, you know, I, I guess I'm kind of feel like I can wrap my head around how consumer goods moving from Asia to the US got all kinds of messed up for many reasons during the crisis. What are the uh, similarities and uh, differences like uh, that we see or that just in general between sort of uh, consumer goods movements versus uh, uh, bulk shipments? Sure. Yeah. Bulk, you know, bulk shipments for, for those that may not uh, may not understand the, the actual practical difference of it is Bulk. That includes me, but oh, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, so think about uh, bulk and break bulk, uh, and I'll explain the difference between the two of them. Are the 
is the old fashioned way of shipping where it's not in a, nothing moves in a container. So dry bulk or bulk is think, think about it as uh, mm. commodities that are measured in tons or volume, right? Like soybeans, uh, corn, iron ore, coal, things like that, that are just, that are basically poured into a ship's hold. That's bulk or what we call it, or bulk or dry bulk, as we call it. Break bulk is is uh, items that you can actually count. So steel coils, bundles of aluminum uh, sows, crates of windows we just looked at recently, which is an interesting story, looking to shift from containers to break bulk because of the misery in China at the moment. So so if you're loading, you know, think, think about the uh, the old movies right on the waterfront of the the longshoremen in, um, on the west side of Manhattan loading crates uh, and, and nets full of cargo bags of cocoa, that's break bulk. If you can count it and you can count the number of pieces, hmm. then it's break bulk. If, if you have to measure it in tons, then it's dry bulk, essentially. And that's the, so these are goods that where it's just not practical or cost effective to work with container with containers. And so Margo and I both come from a diverse background. Uh, Margo and I both graduated from New York Maritime College uh, in the Bronx. I came out as ship's officers. Neither one of us decided to uh, go to sea as uh, as uh, ship's officers. We did our sea time as cadets. And uh, and, and uh, I always say, I decided I have no salt in my veins. I'm ready to, ready to stay shoreside. And I'm better at navigating a cocktail party in London during London Metal Exchange Week than I am at <laughs> navigating a ship to get to London. So, so we went into, uh, both, both of us went into uh, shoreside business of, uh, of shipping, worked a few jobs uh, together, uh, but we both started in the container side of the business, uh, working in various uh, container lines. Margo, I'll pass it over to you to uh, some background on uh, what you did out of school. Uh, very much on the con- container side of the business, uh, working for a container steamship line. From there, I went to a trading company where we moved containerized freight, but we also handled break bulk, um, and that was cocoa beans. Um, and I have eventually evolved into what we do now, which is much more mm-hmm. rooted in industrial products of uh, raw materials or semi-finished product. So we do have a decent background of looking at both sides of the shipping industry. And, um, you know, to Anton's point, it is all quite a mess right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a phrase I've been using that's probably not podcast friendly as to what's going on. So I'll leave that out. But um, but Joe, I want to get to that that heart of the question, the different, you know, looking at the, the difference between the two. So very often when we're looking at moving, <clears throat> moving freight, moving these industrial commodities, we're, we're evaluating, do containers make sense? Or is this going to make sense in bulk or break bulk? Let's say that we had a, a, a trading company that was looking to move copper cathodes from one of the copper producers like Freeport McMoran or uh, uh, Rio Tinto Kennecott Copper, right, uh, in the southwest U.S., and they wanted to move those copper cathodes to Korea. So we would evaluate whether or not it makes sense to stuff those copper cathodes into containers. And ship them to Korea, or if the volume was significant enough, does it make sense to rail those copper cathodes to uh, LA Long Beach and load them onto a break bulk vessel, bulk vessel to go to Korea? So that cost analysis uh, is is a big part of it. But in this day and age, it's not just the cost; it's also the ability to actually 
get equipment to make something happen, which leads uh, leads me to that uh, that that comment I made uh, about the windows. We recently, uh, one of our commercial people uh, had a dialogue with a a company that uh, that imports um, windows um, uh, for consumer windows from China. And there, these windows are sitting in crates uh, in northern China right now, just waiting. Same as the teddy bear. They're the same fate as the teddy bear, missing ship after ship after ship, massive delays, right? This is the reason why everything's there's a shortage. So they had us look at uh, taking those crates and loading them onto a break bulk vessel out of the port of Tianjin uh, in China to uh, shift into the east coast of the U.S. And then we could truck them from there. They right now on that particular one, they didn't end up going for it. The cost was was fairly uh, expensive and the, the transit time was not uh, not fantastic in that particular case. But curious to see if they circle back to us after a few more weeks of waiting for <laughs> waiting for uh, container availability. So we shall see. It's um, we're certainly getting phone calls from people that we've never gotten phone calls from before. <laughs> Well, so that's a pretty good segue into um, the teddy bear project or um, experiment. But we started talking back in January when things were already pretty rough, but it seemed doable. The idea of sending a container from Hong Kong to uh, I think we're were we aiming for L.A.? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, we were looking for LA Long Beach. We wanted we chose we chose the port that we knew was going to be potentially the most <laughs> miserable. While we wanted that we wanted that teddy bear to have some good an, uh, at anchor time off uh, off the California coast to to have the real experience. That's, yeah, right. That's right. So remind me, what was the the cost quote around that time in January when we first started talking? The all in cost for. The local truck, including the local local uh, handling in Hong Kong, and uh, through to a warehouse to to uh, crack open the container, take the teddy bear out in LA Long Beach. I think it was around seven thousand dollars at that point for that, and we knew that that was starting to skyrocket. Right, it was heading heading upward, and we dealt with one cost increase while we were waiting for for the teddy bear to get 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 his uh, space booked. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah. it went up by 500. Is that right? Yeah, I think it went up by 500 bucks. Yeah. But even at that starting point, that freight rate was much too high for what the lane is, which is a common lane when you're talking Asia to the United States West Coast. And it was that starting point was already so indicative of a skyrocketing market. It was already too high for where it should have been, say, a year earlier, pre pandemic. And to your point, it did just continue to go from there and it moved, the rate moved north and you still couldn't get your slot on a ship. We still couldn't get your container moving. So explain why you can't just buy your way onto it. I mean, you know, it's, you mentioned the windows and I, you know, this is again, a big thing that we've been covering. Obviously, home builders in the United States, lumber is a problem. But you can't have a home without windows. And so the windows are uh, sitting in a factory in China and can't get here. Like, is this is is there essentially like there is no price too high um, for what when what people need that those just essentially paying anything and that there's no way to like bid, bid yourself onto these ships? Like explain, maybe walk us through a little bit 
the process? Because in theory, it seems like there should be some price where it's worth it to ship a teddy bear. Actually, probably not. (laughs) But there really should be uh, some price where it's worth it to ship windows, at least, because windows are crucial for the entire home. So can you walk us through the math and the calculations a little bit, whether it's on the home builder side or the factory side, why they just can't move the windows? There certainly becomes a point where it just doesn't make economic sense to ship. And that's why a lot of the cargo will sit. What happens when you end up with so much port congestion for loading, which is exactly what we're suffering now, is often the highest bidder will get you know the spot on the vessel. When you're looking at it, obviously everything boils down to a cost per metric ton for any trader or any um, business and or cost per unit. And where's that break even? Where does it become too expensive, where it becomes a money losing proposition to pay the number you have to pay to guarantee yourself a slot on the ship? So it's much like, you know, to compare it to the trucking industry in the United States. Anyone can quote you a freight rate, trucking or container freight, and set, and the number looks great on paper. But when it boils down to it and they're looking at a steamship line is looking to load their ship and they have those 10 containers over there willing to pay $10,000 per container, your $5,000, your $7,000 freight rate container is not going to get the slot. Can I just ask a quick follow up then? What types of goods are crowding out the others such that, okay, let's say $10,000. What does it make sense to ship for $10,000 that it doesn't make? sense. I guess, if, does that question make sense? What are these high value goods that are dominating the space on the ships? Right. And it's not, it's not so much high value as much mm-hmm. as you need high margin. You have to be able to absorb that. From the industrial product sector that we sit in, those margins are typically too small. So our typical client base is not going to be who gets the space on the ship. And we actually had a um, client trying to ship a specialized rebar out of China. It was test shipments coming into the U.S. We needed, and it was maybe 100 tons or 200 tons. It was nothing tremendous, five to 10 containers. And we could not get the space on a ship for that because they weren't willing to pay up. So once you get to some of the um, higher sales point items or higher volume items that you can you know, get a lot into the container, your margins are going up. I don't know what that answer is specifically, but I'm going to say it's probably more merchandise freight mm-hmm. yeah, because that's where you where you can push push your costs into the price that's on the shelf. So when you're looking you're looking at something that's produced in Asia and it's not produced here or the production cost here to make I don't know a container of teddy bears, I don't know, a container of of clothing, whatever that product is, it's still so cheap to produce it in Asia, ship it here, bear the cost increase on the freight, and then get it to market. But for us, and when we're working with traders, that buy and sell point are are already established when they're looking to load out of Asia. And often the trade just doesn't have enough room to bear the increased freight cost and still be profitable. Yeah, and, and uh, often the industrial commodities that we're dealing with are produced here, copper, uh, aluminum, steel, right? So there is a market, domestic market, to be able to to, to sh- make the deal with that shift if they just can't 
if imports just can't work. And I think something else to add to add to it also is um, you know, take the window example, right, uh, where we were looking to shift that to, uh, to to break bulk. In that particular case, the, the ship operator that was offered put put a number out that was fairly really high for that that particular move, but. They're just like any ship operator and the container ship operators are doing this also. They're going to allocate space to their regular contract clients. So that space is going to go to the to the producers that are shipping to Walmart and the Target, right, on a regular, regular basis. So just to, it's human nature, right, uh, essentially, and, and business nature in that respect. You take care of your of your largest clients at that point uh, to give them the space that they need, and the others will fall by the wayside. So my understanding to that point is there were really three things that were against us on the teddy bear project. Uh, number one was Bloomberg, you know, contrary to popular belief, was cost sensitive. And every time we had a price hike, I had to go back to the editor who approves our expenses and explain that, you know, freight costs were just out of control and that this thing that should cost a few thousand dollars was now closer to 7000 And then secondly, we weren't doing this as a massive client. So we weren't Walmart, we weren't Ikea or someone like that. We were just a single container, not even a, a full size container, but um, half size, I think 20 foot, which was also a problem because it's harder to get those onto a ship. So I guess my question is like, were we sort of doomed from the start in the current environment? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say we were doomed from the start, but it it became apparent that that the doom was coming right uh, if, after waiting uh, for the for the time that we that we did. Uh, for sure, there was going to be there was going to be delays, but but the delays uh, were were building and and compounding. Right as we got uh, further to the point where today, if we tried to do that today, uh, we would we would say forget it. Let's not, let's not even touch it. You see what's happening right right over the border from Hong Kong in Shenzhen at the port of uh, Yantan. Uh, they have now a, uh, a COVID outbreak that's causing some delays, massive congestion. Ship owners, the container op container ship operators, are now avoiding Yantan and and the and the congestion is starting to roll over into other local ports in the Pearl River River Delta. Uh, so if we tried to to make that happen right now, I think we we might even see container lines saying, you know, forget it. Come <laughs> let's look at it next year, right at this point. So so yeah, we it was getting worse by the day and uh and looking looking today, it's exponentially more of a problem right now based on on what's happening happening locally there. So yeah, right next to Hong Kong is a complete uh, and utter uh, transportation congestion disaster at the moment. You know, but when we started talking about this back in January, and maybe it's really um, quite parallel to this COVID world that we lived in the, in the last year, year plus, where, you know, you, you, you see the the difficulty for many months ahead and everyone's talking about it and we know it, be it COVID, be it shipping. But, you know, we're always kind of hopeful and the talking points have been on everything. But, you know, maybe in six months out, it's better or whatever that time frame is. So when we were talking in January, 
we knew it was bad and we knew it wasn't getting great anytime soon. But the projection at that point for when possibly recovery would start coming and normalization to these shipping lanes would resume on in the containerized market was a much rosier picture than what reality has been. So to for Anton to be correct in saying, we wouldn't even think about this today because since January, it's done nothing but stay horrible, this, this prospect of trying to ship in containers. But back in January, we, the conversation was talking about normalcy or, you know, moving towards normalcy by this point in the year. It just hasn't happened. It's not getting better yet. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So this is really, just to be clear, A, it's his worst today. We're recording this June 9th. It'll be out pretty soon. Uh, it's his worst today as it's uh, been all year. There's no sign that it's getting better and still the trajectory is going the wrong way in your view. Why is that? Why has it? Why have we not seen any normalization? And what is uh, what is the current outlook look like, look like right now? I would say that you know what we're still experiencing experiencing rather is that the volumes just haven't slowed. So there's definitely a shortage of space on ships. There's just you know so many ships and so many slots to fill, and you, you can see articles now that. The uh, orders into shipyards for new vessels is absolutely increased, and it is a reaction to what is happening now. Sh- uh, ship, o- ship owners are seeing the opportunities to build ships. One statistic on that one, Margo, just to jump in for a sec, uh, as I was just reading the new container ship orders into shipyards for the first five months of 2021, uh, are d- the amount is double the entire numbers of new ship orders for container ships of all of 2019 and 2020. So just the first five months. So that kind of goes to that housing market that I mentioned, uh, Joe, right? Does uh, the inventory, right, issue. So sorry. So, but, but that cure is reactionary, but it's not a, sh- it's a long-term goal to, you know, this is a, a big book of shipbuilding that is now on the table. It doesn't resolve it today. And what we can't resolve is that we are still ordering a ton of online goods from, you know, that are all sourcing out of Asia. There is this residual congestion that is very, very difficult to overcome. And then a lot of the congestion is also due to the massive size of these vessels that are trying to get into these ports. And there just simply isn't enough physical space at these ports to accommodate the volume of containers that are going to come off a ship and what is potentially going to try and reload to a ship at any point. So that also continues to keep it a slow, a slow um, cleanup at the ports to try and get all this material through because 
they got to push out the loaded containers to make space for the next vessel to offload. But the railroad can't take them out fast enough. And until they're out, we can't get the next ship in. So it's really quite the domino effect, which means the ships are not getting back to Asia to pick up the next round of loaded cargo. So what's the resolve? What's the the timeline? I don't know what that is. I don't even know what people are realistically expecting at this point. We are seeing, um, there was actually an email that came through our inbox yesterday to myself and Anton from someone we know that we know we do um, break bulk work with them, but they have one of their colleagues trying to put together freight for a six month term containerized uh, running through the end of the year and asking us for help if we can direct them to anyone who will put a contract in place for them, which is never going to happen. As you know, uh, Tracy, we couldn't, we couldn't maintain a price for your one container of a teddy bear. (laughs) The prices were skyrocketing. What, what container line today is going to say, yes, I will take your brand new contract for six months to ship at a guaranteed rate in this total mess of a market. Yeah. (laughs) Guarantee you space, guarantee you a rate. The whole, the the market could just continues to be a, to be quite a mess. Should we should we do a whole nother episode, uh, guys, on infrastructure too? <laughs> because you know, Margot touched on it. The size of these container ships. When, when we first got out of school, and I went to work for used to be Neptune Orient Lines, now it's American President Lines. Uh, I was working in Port Newark, working ships that were five six thousand TEU container ships. Those are. TU means 20-foot equivalent units, so that means that that ship could hold five or 6,000 20-foot containers, right? Now, and, and that was a, like kind of a, a ship on, the, on a little bit of the larger size, a, you know, medium size at that point. That ship, the Ever Given, that got stuck in the Suez Canal was, what, 20,000 TUs? I mean, massive. Uh, it, the, so imagine that ship calling in a port that hasn't been sufficiently upgraded to deal with not, not only the, the actual ship operations, right, but but the, as Margo uh, said also, too, though just the flow of the containers off the ship, out the door, out off the dock, onto trucks, and the flow back, back flow of, uh, of empty containers coming back to those ports. Some ports in the, in the United States have, have uh, significantly upgraded in some areas they made. Uh, large improvements to deal with these very large container ships, but nowhere nearly enough. So, uh, you know, it certainly leads into the infrastructure discussion, right? So we're seeing uh, you know, the I-40 bridge right in uh, Memphis uh, fell, uh, falling apart, and it stopped up the barge traffic on the Mississippi River uh, for days because of uh, chunks of a bridge falling in truck. Not only that, but trucks couldn't uh, can't transit over it. So we're seeing... We're seeing everything. Anton, no, the, no chunks fell off the bridge. Oh, you're right. It wasn't chunks. <laughs> they, it was a they, crack in they, the steel. They yes. said it was a crack. It was a, a crack you could see daylight uh, through. It was uh, kind of uh, massive. But you're right. Sorry. It wasn't nothing chunks. fell into the river. Either way, so, I don't want to be on a tugboat going under it. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I was just thinking, like, maybe the, the solution t- um, to all our problems is is infrastructure spending, right? Like, it's not... It might not actually be inflationary. It might solve the inflation right. problem if we could well, upgrade that, the ports. That's the argument, right? Like, even mainstream economists make this <laughs> argument that, like, you know, you don't have to, you know, it, it pays for itself if it reduces the cost of everything. 
by making uh by making everything cheaper by making everything more available so i have at least like a dozen questions um that i want to ask but i'm trying to focus it so i guess like my main question is when you're talking to your clients now what sort of preparations are they making for the future and how creative are they being when it comes to actually transporting stuff because for instance we talked about maybe trying to ship the teddy bear out of China. Um, eventually, we decided against that because Bloomberg doesn't actually have an export license, and I didn't want to get my entire company in trouble for the purposes of, you know, a stunt journalism article. But uh, is that the kind of stuff you're seeing now? Like, are people just going to lengths or to routes that they wouldn't normally do? Yeah, we're, we're seeing uh, we're seeing all all of the above, right? Some clients that 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 are. Are adjusting well and are, are understand what's going on and working on a practical ways to to deal with it to to set expectations properly with their with their customers and then there's others right that are like the deer in the headlights right uh, that that uh, what do you mean why can't this happen uh, uh, this has always been this uh, this has always worked why not now and and so the education process of what's going on where I'm spending a lot of time sending articles out to clients to show them what's what's happening in the market and explaining what others are uh, what others are seeing and how it's not just a unique situation to uh, not, not a unique uh, issue with their particular situation. So speaking of infrastructure and the degradation of the infrastructure or the fact that the infrastructure hasn't come up and Anton, you kind of hinted at it briefly, but you mentioned housing. And one of the biggest themes that we talk about on the on the show was essentially been the supply side degradation to capacity, industrial, um, residential, et cetera, during the 10 years, basically, between the, the 11 years between the end of the great financial crisis and the start of COVID and how much we're paying for that now. And so I'm curious, like sort of like your perspective on that from the uh, from the uh, transport perspective, I think we've talked about it a little bit, but how much did we essentially pay the price for a very a big bear market in global trade and the way that that discourages fresh investment? Yeah, for sure. It, it's uh, you know in, in doing this for Margaret, I've been doing this about thirty years now, right? And, and uh, so we we we've seen a, a we have a good historical overview of how things have been flowing. Let's take. Take the river system, right? And and this is something that a lot of the listeners may not be too familiar with because it's not in day to day uh, in the day to day uh, news, right? But uh, but enormous amounts of of commodities and cargoes move up and down the river system, the Mississippi River, uh, ships coming into New Orleans, loading out uh, uh, export uh, grains and and uh, other commodities from barges to direct to ship for export. And then in, inbound ships going into into the New Orleans area, the Mississippi River, and transferring their cargoes direct from ships into barges to move up the river, going up the Mississippi River all the way as far as St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, and as far as uh, Chicago on the Illinois River, and then moving up the Ohio River as far as Pittsburgh. Uh, you could get to Tulsa, Oklahoma via via the river system going up the Mississippi River, and then making a left onto the Arkansas River, essentially, right? So, so it's just this enormous uh, marine highway, right, that, that uh, runs, the, runs through the, the heart of the United States. Now, we have seen just growing 
a list of problems with the locks and dams uh, throughout the river system. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers maintains those. They're reliant on the federal budget to pay for those upgrades. Uh, and but, so we're seeing now uh, some, some infrastructure upgrades uh, happening, uh, locks and dams being shut down uh, in order to, to affect those repair, repair work that's needed because there, there are some real crumbling situations in these locks and dams. So the, the tugs and barges uh, that are moving, uh, moving throughout the river system have a reliant on, on moving through the, this system of locks and dams in order to, to transit. So the, uh, this is an, an infrastructure area that has just been so neglected over the years, but it's so, so much a part of vital commerce for the United States. So coal, iron ore, to go into making steel, uh, grain, all the agricultural commodities that move, move on barges and moving. It's a, such a cost effective way. The cost to move, move goods on barges compared to rail freight or truck freight is, uh, is just exponentially lower, uh, because you can take one tugboat, uh, and put with that one tugboat, it can push a, a unit of 30 barges at a time. Uh, along the mainline rivers. So going from New Orleans up to Cairo, Illinois, for example, which is a main transit point, you'll have a line tugboat, a large tugboat, pushing 30 barges. And each of those barges uh, is carrying, let's say, about uh, 1,600, 1,700 tons in in each barge. So one tugboat pushing 30 barges at 1,600 tons each on average you could imagine the efficiency in that, the fuel efficiency, right, compared to an over-the-road over truck or even compared to rail freight. So that cost is low. So this infrastructure on the river system, uh, the neglect uh, that, that's been there, we're, we're now starting to pay the price for that. We're seeing more and more delays. The barge lines that operate on the river system are passing along those costs to the shippers, to the cargo interests like never before, right? And Margo, some examples, right? Margo's dealing with uh, barge line invoices day to day and seeing what our clients are seeing. Well, it is a it is an ongoing problem. And there is, you know, there's a couple of different cost points that it hits. And it is the cost incurred for the wait time that is born or passed on to the cargo owner. But there's also a delay in getting to market. So, you know, we had we have barges that are trying to get up the uh Cumberland right now to get into Nashville. And those barges are suffering because of uh, locks that are down with intermittent openings that you really have to hustle to try and get your barge scheduled on one of those openings. It's kind of like trying to get a container onto a ship in Asia. Um, it's pulling some strings and talking to, to some friends at the barge lines to say, can you get, get a couple of my clients' barges through? But there's limited space. So now we have a cost of carry born by, or not born by, but in, uh, suffered for the cargo owner. So they're paying additional fees. Then they're, they have cost of carry and they have a commercial tender that they're trying to not default on. It's, it's very stressful to the market. It's not just that river. And at any point, you can look at the barge lines, weekly updates as to what is up and coming. And while I'm dealing with the Cumberland currently for one client, I'm also yesterday, I was sending emails to two other clients for cargo that they have scheduled up the Arkansas River 
this summer, which will also be closed for a period of time, August into September. It is it is um, just a moving a moving target at this point on where the next closure will be. Last year, it was Chicago for a couple of months. The you couldn't get in and out of Chicago by barge, and the river system, as Anton has has mentioned, is really quite the super highway within Middle America that most of us don't know about, and you know Anton and I only have an education in it for what we do. But until we started doing this. I, I did not grow grow up understanding how much of the United States, how much of our trade relies on our river system. So it is really critical to uh, to us. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tracy, I think we definitely now have to do another episode. <laughs> Seriously, like I had never like, yeah, you know, like in no all idea. the conversations, I think I was kind of aware, you know, like I grains, other things, but the degree to which A, it's so crucial still and B, so structurally degraded and congested right now. I had not appreciated that that all. So now we're adding that to the list of uh, supply chain logistics infrastructure <laughs> stories uh, episodes that we have to do. I think we need to uh, we need to charter like a tugboat up yeah. the Mississippi, right? That'll be uh, our next odd lots event. I'm ready to take that on, Tracy. I want to I want to throw <laughs> okay. I want to throw another curveball at you, right? Let's throw in. Uh, situation and throw in the climate change uh, issue ah, to yeah. into where you have uh, where, you know affecting the uh, the river system right an ice melt that uh, the the spring ice ice melt that then goes into the river system in the Mississippi River up north and creates uh, creates problems for us all the way down river to New Orleans because of high river conditions right you have ships coming in that need to have standby tugboats just to keep them in place because while they're working the ships because of uh, just extreme high river high it just high river flows at that point so um, I wouldn't even take take a stab at uh, how climate change is going is affecting that has been affecting that and, and will continue to to affect and make that worse but you could add a whole nother element into the into the story of uh, transportation so our little part of our little part of the uh, world of uh, business is becoming all the more interesting these days I think Absolutely. I mean, it definitely sounds like it. But okay, so a big question for you, given your 
expertise and given your very unique vantage point where you're looking at global shipping, you're looking at what a big a lot of big commodities players are doing, you're looking at things that are going up and down US rivers. I I know you're not economist per se, but you're very aware of the inflation discussion at the moment. How much are these logistics snarls, these transport issues playing into pure commodity prices just from your sort of with your shipping hat on? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, there is no question, right? The the cost, the commodity price costs are, are a direct correlation to what's happening in, in the world of, of freight and transportation. Absolutely. We're seeing uh, prices. Uh, we're working, let's take... Um, Take an example right now of uh, one of our one of our clients, uh, a steel trader that's looking to bring in tin plate coil from the Far East into the States. And that tin plate coil is used for um, making cans, right? Uh, Cans and for consumer goods, right? So we're trying to put a freight contract together for them right now for multiple shipments of a few thousand tons each of these template coils and the discussion right that they're having with the with the uh their end customer that's going to be using this steel is uh, is uh the how to price the cost of the steel with the freight fluctuation right so you know we're we're very used to seeing fuel surcharges right which are directly correlated to to a base uh, benchmark fuel price, maybe the price of diesel at Baton Rouge, right, for for barge freight or uh, the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce, right, uh, for uh, uh, base diesel prices for truck fuel surcharges. So now starting to see uh, starting to see commercial contracts uh, with on these com- on these types of commodities that have allowances for freight for freight adjustments on there. So not just fuel adjustments, but also for freight adjustments to to take into consideration that the container price for maybe in July maybe ten thousand dollars, but in August it may be fifteen thousand dollars. So that cost needs to be passed passed on. So you know we're not in a commercial role in this respect, right? So, so we could talk, talk a little bit to what we're seeing and how our clients are dealing with that freight uncertainty, if that kind of helps answer the question, I think. Oh, Tracy. totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Steel, aluminum, uh, right. Copper, everything is, is getting, getting hit. So those, those prices are just flowing, flowing through and eventually it's, uh, flowing through to what's on the shelves, Right. So one of the themes, again, that we have is that, you know, obviously some players, maybe shippers are in a position to make a lot of money right now with this incredible demand. But does everyone still think this is like a sugar high or transitory or that it's only a matter of time before the bottom falls out again and we return to something like normal? Or will is this a kind of boom that would cause companies in this space to invest more and expand capacity uh, in some way, something that le- or leads to sort of durable changes in how uh, the industry does business. Let's remember that question a year from now, okay. <laughs> right? And look back because the the cycle is is just like the housing, you know, right. uh, housing, which it was a great uh, episode, by the way, guys. I like, I really like that. The ship owners, as we, as we said, right? The ship ship owners now are putting in these orders into the shipyards to build, build, build. Sure enough. Just like drunken sailors of the past, right? The money goes flowing out and uh, it will only be a matter of time before they're looking at too many ships 
and they're killing each other for the for the freight. When that's going to happen, I won't. Uh, yeah, that that that's above my above my uh, level of uh, of economic intelligence. <laughs> I think. But it is sick. It is cyclical, right, Anton? I mean, it's uh-huh. it it the shipping community seems to hang their hat really on a supply and demand, but you're building a ship, the reaction time, you're just, it's just not that quick. Right. So, so it's great on this high to then throw your money into new equipment, new vessels, which is wonderful, but you know, you're not going to get it for a couple of years and where's the market then? Let let me throw an example out at you, right? 2014 sticks in my head, barge freight market, 2014. Um, It was an unusually heavy grain season. Grain season is the harvest time when the grain producers uh, and trading companies are moving grain southbound from from the harvest areas in the States uh, down to to the New Orleans area uh, for export. Right. So typically that's a time when when barge freight market just moves upward uh, in general. So let's say that um, barge freight uh, per ton from New Orleans to Chicago northbound is running in the mid teens per per short ton on a on a typical year basis in 2014. That grain season, those rates, there was such a shortage of barges and such a, such a surge of southbound grain that the barge lines were much more happy to move their barges empty northbound just to keep them in place, uh, in position for the grain. So we saw barge rates to Chicago in the $40, the mid forties per ton instead of, instead of 15, try 45, right? Fast forward from 2014 to 2015. There was no grain season. It was it was a bust, right? So, how many new barges were built by barge lines after that boom grain season? Right, uh, I'm not sure. I don't have that statistic, but we see this this cycle, just this cycle constantly of of the ocean freight market, the bulk ocean freight market uh, moving. But what we what's unusual about right now, and I think everyone would agree, is we haven't seen this across the board global surge right. the way we're seeing it now it seems it seems far more broad right sure i can relate that uh 2014 green season situation but that was isolated to the barge freight market and yeah we've seen truck uh, driver shortages that's been building for years as Margaret and i were talking this morning that's not a new story that's that's been i've been i've had that slide up on every presentation i've given it at a steel and aluminum conference over the past few years about the shortage in truck drivers so <laughs> so that was uh that we, was coming we have a trucking episode coming up so we already have that one in play so two things here, like really drilling down into the nature of the shipping industry. So number one, is there something about shipping that makes it inherently cyclical? And is there a reason overall that we get these big booms and busts? And then secondly, to something that Margot was talking about earlier, why can't you lock in a rate for, you know, later in the year? Like, why can I not book space on a ship that's due to go out in December at some sort of pre-agreed rate. Why is it so difficult when, you know, I assume other types of business, other industries, you are able to lock in um, some sort of forward agreement so that you can have certainty and an outlook on on what you're supposed to be doing. So, But shipping seems to be very different. So I, I guess my question is, why is the shipping industry so different? Well, if we're going to look at containers... 
if you lock in today, it goes back to us trying to get a container with a teddy bear for $7,000 on a vessel. You didn't get a slot because there was someone else probably willing to pay $8,000 and your freight got bumped. So the shipping market is like all others and it really reacts to supply and demand, which is the production of vessels because money is flowing. Eventually we will have too much capacity and freight rates will be so, so low because there's ships everywhere with empty slots that we can load onto. So I could get someone to lock in a rate and say, sure, China to Long Beach, we're going to do that for $5,000. We're going to book it. But do you get a guaranteed slot? And are you guaranteed to load on a vessel? Probably not. So right now where your mark, where the market is and to what Anton spoke to earlier, the, you need to be the Walmarts and the Nikes and the big players, the Ikeas of the world to have those guaranteed slots at your contracted rate. But the rest of us that aren't don't have that contract in place, nor that annual guaranteed volume to ship. That's that's who's living in the free for all. And that's what that's what the market has been as a free for all. Well, I remember like when we were talking to uh, Ryan Peterson, the Flexport CEO, and and I and I was actually I'm glad you brought that up. And I wanted to like he was saying that like the shipping industry is still sort of like it really helps to like if you just know a random guy in Denmark. And like, or like, it, it it helps to like know someone at relationships, Maris relationships, relationships, and who's probably named like <laughs> Lars or something like that. And to like that, like, if you really need to get your windows shipped out of China, like, you got to call up Lars. And so I'm curious, like, is it because the industry so so concentrated that it hasn't had the need to create a more competitive booking process? Is it a simple technological fix, like? why not sort of like upgrade it a bit such that people can just sort of have a more dynamic auction for uh for for a space yeah there's not a lot uh not a lot of transparency in that uh that respect that dynamic auction yeah. type situation um been tried in many different uh many different ways right platforms to be able to uh you know, take a bulk ship yeah, let's just talk about bulk sure. shipping for a second right there's been many different uh attempts by technology companies uh, or technologically focused uh people in the shipping industry to put together a more uh open auction transparent platform exchange an exchange to some extent right for for actual booking freight, but it uh, always seems to revert back to the uh, yeah. or back to the old old fashion of uh, right knowing the right guy in Copenhagen <laughs> type thing, which is kind of you know what keeps us in business right. right to some extent as a third party intermediary right, which is what we what we are right, or a logistics management company right. Our our value we don't own ships, we don't own barges, we don't own rail cars right, so. So the, there's a value in having expertise and knowing where to go for for that. Uh, that so yeah, there's been a natural res- right resistance to the to that. Um, well, it's and An- Anton, it's expertise and relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I tell you, just another thing too on the bulk freight. Uh, looking back, let's take that uh, that steel coming out of um, out of uh, the Far East that I mentioned. In that particular case, we're we're working to get a three. Uh, three shipment uh, contract together, right, for October, December, and February to move to move uh, that ste- to move that steel. 
we're seeing resistance from ship operators for offering that far out. And the ones that uh, have are pricing it quite significantly uh, higher, right? They're taking certainly a big premium on that. Um, you have a situation too on the bulk side, and it's, it's this is a little bit, this is where it differs from the container side. Bulk ship operators, and I'm using the term term operators rather than owners here, are often not the actual owners of the ship. They operate as a as a uh, as a ship ship operator, but they take the ships that they're using on, on time charter. Essentially, they're renting those ships. They're chartering those ships. So um, we have a situation at the moment where the handy size market, uh, which is a Handy size market rate for ships and handy size of these ships that are running in the 25, 35, 40,000 ton capacity range, right? These ships were going in the market at the very beginning of the year in January, maybe about $10,000 a day to, to time charter one of those ships. They're now in the $30,000, $35,000 a day in the Pacific market. So if you're a ship operator, let's say you're, you're ABC shipping. And you priced moving steel from the Far East to the U.S. Gulf at, let's say, $65 a ton. But you, you based that $65 a ton rate that you gave to the steel mill, you based that rate on a $10,000 a day ship, uh, being able to get a ship at $10,000 a day. And now you have to go out and perform under that contract. Right, you agreed to sixty-five dollars to that steel mill. Now you got to go charter in a ship at thirty thousand dollars a day. That sixty-five dollars doesn't make economic sense anymore, and we're seeing some very, very serious problems in delays with ship operators that that are not performing at the moment uh, because of uh, because of this. Right, and and this is where this type of market situation has happened in the past. Right, but it's where. It separates the professionals and the ship operating side from the uh, from the amateurs, the ones that prepared ahead of time that had ships on on sufficient long enough time charter periods to perform under their contracts versus the cowboys that booked that sixty five dollars with the mill, but hoped that the market you know, didn't didn't anticipate the market jumping like this and that now or that now can't perform and are leaving cargoes behind strewn about the Far East, which is one of the situations we're dealing with at the moment, too. All right, uh, Anton and Margot, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time on the podcast and also your months of uh, hard work trying to get the shipment out of Hong Kong and all your patience uh, with with uh, us doing the paperwork. So thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. That was fun. Hold on to that teddy bear, Tracy, because when I get to Hong Kong next time to visit, I will personally carry it back to the States. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, we'll get really creative with our transport solutions. All right. Thank you. That was great. So, Joe, you can probably tell I very much enjoyed that conversation. It was nice to get more of a breakdown between the container shipping world versus bulk because I hadn't considered that. It was also interesting to hear about what's going on in U.S. rivers because that was definitely something I hadn't considered before. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that at all before. But I also and I feel like each time I love these series because I feel like 
Um, you know, we started with Mark Levinson with uh, our, the box, which, you know, look at really big picture at shipping. We keep getting more granular and then key, and it keeps uh, turning over new leaves. Obviously, we got to talk about uh, the canals and the river systems and how important they still are. Uh, but I feel like both of them, Anton and Margot, just had uh, so many sort of like specific insights, you know, specific details about what makes the situation so tricky. That was super helpful. Absolutely. And um, I should do this before I forget, but I just want to give a big um, shout out slash thank you to some of the Bloomberg staff that helped with the teddy bear project, um, in particular, Dylan Rico and Coco Live from our supply chain office in Hong Kong, who very patiently <laughs> answered all these questions about how to like secure a teddy bear, a single teddy bear in a crate, um, and worked on organizing, uh, you know, the um, the transport within Hong Kong as well. So she was amazing. Of course, um, the guy who approves my expense accounts as well, which is Reto. So thank you, Reto, for <laughs> allowing us to spend thousands of dollars on, on this, um, even though we didn't actually do it in the end. There you go. Well, uh, let's try again. In, uh, let's, see, let's try again in a year. Hopefully there will be some uh, stability and they'll find they'll find some space for you on a ship. How much do you think a tugboat costs up the Mississippi? I don't know. Do you know the answer? No. Oh, I thought you, I thought you like I thought you were like going to give me like a trivia question or something like that. No. <laughs> no all right. I'm just well, then, all right. We got let's let's get to work on booking that episode. Okay. All right. Uh, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at the Stalwart. Follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.